LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Dr. Penny Sartori, who joins us to discuss her book, The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences, How the Messages of NDEs Positively Impact the World. A near-death experience, or NDE, is a profound psychological event that may occur to a person close to death or in extreme physical or emotional crisis. An NDE may begin with an out-of-body experience, possibly hovering nearby and watching events around the body. An NDE typically includes a sense of moving, often at great speed and usually through a dark space, into a fantastic landscape and encountering beings that may be perceived as sacred figures, deceased family members or friends, or unknown entities. A pinpoint of indescribable light may grow to surround the person in brilliant radiance. Unlike physical light, it is not merely visual, but is sensed as an all-loving presence that many people define as the supreme being of their religious faith. The emotions of an NDE are intense and most commonly include peace, love and bliss, although a substantial minority are marked by terror, anxiety or despair. Most people come away from the experience with an unshakable belief that they have learned something of immeasurable importance about the purpose of life. Overall, the experience is ineffable and the effects are often so powerful that they create permanent change in people's lives. This phenomenon is as old as humankind itself and has been documented and explained or dismissed in myriad ways for just as long. In the modern world, dominated by scientific reductionism, NDEs are generally viewed as mere chemical byproducts of a dying brain, the after-effects and apparent implications derided as wishful thinking and New Age nonsense. Evidence that NDEs contain a profoundly important message for humanity, however, continues to emerge and the possibility that they may play a vital part in our evolution is very real indeed. The near-death experience instills knowledge in those who experience it that we are all interconnected, part of a much greater whole, and that what we do to others, we do to ourselves. Hello and welcome, Penny, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. It's lovely to be here. Today, Penny, we're going to talk about a brand new book that you've co-authored with Kelly Walsh and with contributions from lots of other people. Uh, The book's entitled The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences, How the Message of NDEs Positively Impact the World. Uh, Before we leap into that, just give listeners a little bit of info about your career and your background, your work in general. Okay, well, I used to work as a nurse in intensive care, and it was early on in my career that I had an encounter with a patient who had a quite a, a suffering and prolonged death, 
And that sort of made me question what happens when we die. What is death all about? Why do we have to subject patients to such atrocities, really, at the end of their life when we should be um, helping them to ease gently into death? And I realized that we really don't understand death. And I started reading about death. And then I came across near-death experiences. And I thought, well, you know, these are really quite interesting because people are saying that they've died temporarily and they've had this wonderful experience and they didn't want to return to life. And uh, although it sounded such a, a lovely experience, I know my nurse training was very scientific. So I had that bit of skepticism about me and I thought, well, I don't know really. I'm not sure it could be that the brain is just shutting down as we approach death. And I thought, well, I'm working in, in the ideal place where I can research this. And so that's what I decided to do. I undertook my own research study and I gathered data where I interviewed patients in my care in the intensive care unit for five years. And then it took a further three years to analyze the data and to write it up. And at the end of it, I was awarded a PhD for the research. And since then, really, my, my ongoing interest has been the phenomenon of near-death experiences. And I think they're fascinating. And I think there is just so much that we can learn from these experiences. Now, you've previously written a great deal um, about near-death experiences and, and other sort of related areas, shall we say, because the more you get into this, the more you realise what a great overlap there is with some other areas of research and study, particularly psi phenomena in general, you know, the non-material world. Uh, so we'll come on to some of the details of that in a moment. But this book is a little bit different what you've done previously because, you, as I mentioned earlier, you co-authored it with Kelly Walsh. So perhaps you could just tell us, um, she's not here to speak for herself today, so perhaps you could just tell us just a little bit about her story and then um, how you came to meet, how this book came into being. Yes, well, it was um, in 2014, and my book, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences, had not long come out, and I, was, I had been inundated by emails from people sharing their experiences, and in fact, I had so many emails that I, I couldn't respond to them all, and um, it was in May time, and I was heavily pregnant at the time, and I was due to give birth to my son, and I thought, I can't continue responding to all of these emails, so I really need to take some time off now, maternity time, and really get some rest in preparation for the birth. And so I decided that I wasn't going to respond to the emails. But um, one came through just as I kind of made that decision. And it was a very brief email, and it was from Kelly Walsh, and it said, Hi Penny, um, I had a near-death experience a few years ago, and it's guided my future work as a result. Um, please could we have a chat? And for some reason, intuitively, I knew that I had to respond to that email. Although it was very brief and didn't give any details of her experience, I just felt that I had to respond. So I replied to her straight away and we organised a Skype chat and we chatted the following day. And I was really impressed with Kelly because of what she said. Not only had she had a, a near-death experience, but it was more the effects of the experience and what she was doing with her life as a result of the experience. So in the book, Kelly describes her experience in full. And basically, she um, had uh, attempted to take her own life through an overdose. And when she was recovering on the um, psychiatric ward, it was during um, the late afternoon, uh, the night, and um, she was holding on to a wooden cross. 
and she went into some sort of altered state of consciousness and she felt that she went through seven bumps of the universe and during that time where she was kind of out of her body she was told that like-minded souls would collaborate to change the world and she was she had this feeling of deep unconditional love and interconnectivity as well and as a result of her experience it, there's many different things to comment on really about her experience the first thing is that prior to trying to take her own life Kelly had suffered greatly all of her life with depression and anxiety and low self-esteem but now um, having had her experience all of those symptoms have gone. She's no longer depressed. She's no longer anxious. And she no longer has those self-esteem issues. And she is now a very positive person. And to the point that she's actually created a character called Positivity Princess. And it's to empower young children. And her vision for this character as well is about um, having an animated character. So there's a, a cartoon that children can watch so it can empower them from a young age and you know her her ideas are absolutely amazing and she she patented all these ideas as well and I was thinking well that's incredible you know she's got a business mind as well but what her intention is is to create something and all of this money goes into ch a charity which then funds different projects of young children all around the world and that is what exactly what is driving Kelly you know to make a difference in the world and so whereas she could have you know made millions of her own um, she is, has decided that what she wants to work about is for the greater good of mankind and all of her all of the, the money that the the charity can generate through what she's done by patenting these uh, children's characters then that can go into the foundation so that it can do good in the world. And I just thought that is just such a wonderful thing to do. And it's just such a vision as well. So um, that was one of the things that really kind of um, drew me to Kelly. And when we Skyped as well, you know, she, she came up with the idea for this book. And um, she suggested that the royalties for the book go towards charity as well. So it's her... What is on her mind is how she can serve and how she can make that difference in the world. Yeah, well, you touched upon some of the key aspects of the near-death experience, the experience itself and also the aftermath. We'll come back to that in a second, but you just put a thought in my head when you were talking about um, children there. Is And I think that in general, we do often do a great disservice to the younger generation by a certain amount of dishonesty about death or just refusal to discuss it. You can do more than something like granddad's gone to heaven. That's fine up to a point, but you don't have to say, you know, so-and-so's dead, they're not coming back, get used to it. It doesn't have to be harsh or unfeeling. But I just think if we were a little bit more honest throughout life, then certainly as adults, we'd be better able to, to deal with death because it's just one of the great taboos, isn't it? And I think that that lifelong hiding away from death and denial of death leaves us in rather poor shape when we ourselves uh, come to face it. Yeah, that's right. I and, and in fact, this is a discussion I had today when I was teaching my class and we were talking about how we shield children from death and we think that perhaps we're protecting them, where in fact we're perhaps making it more of a difficult thing for them to understand. And I think, you know, children are really quite receptive to these things anyway. 
And if you look at years ago before hospitals, you know, and, and how the deathbed scene was something that was at home and it was participated in by everyone really, all of the family, um, the neighbours, the local community, everyone came to visit the person who was on their deathbed and it was very much a part of growing up for children as well and children were there at the deathbed sitting on the death on on the bed of the person who was dying. So it's almost as if, you know, in modern times, we've kind of lost that connection that we had with death. And consequently, yes, children, I think it, it, it is very difficult for them to understand because we tend not to talk about it openly. It is that taboo subject. And of course, and this is very much where the near-death experience comes into to teach us something, is that the certainly the Western, you know, scientific paradigm is viewing um, an afterlife, afterlife as a sort of, you know, fanciful artifact of the religious minded. And if we tell ourselves constantly that uh, after death there's a black void of nothingness, well, that's pretty terrifying to contemplate. It's no wonder that actually sometimes religious people do have more of a balance and are better able to process death because even if someone, you know, an atheist might turn around and say, oh, well, it's just pure fantasy. The point is, if, if they believe it, then that has an actual effect. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's it's funny because kind of if just one or two people kind of describe this experience. But what we're finding is that there's studies now done in hospices where um, nurses and physicians at the bedside of, of patients have been interviewed about what they've witnessed. And, you know, this is something that is widely recognized by healthcare professionals, you know. They, they witness people as they're approaching death on their deathbed. They're communicating with people that we can't see. They, they talk in symbolic language. They talk about packing their bags, about going on a journey or waiting for their train to come into the station. There's lots of things like that. And so if it was just one or two, people describing this, it wouldn't have much impact. But the fact that there's studies being done all over the world now and they're all collectively saying very similar things, it goes on to suggest that, you know, the process of death is something far more than what we give credit for. Collectively, when these experiences happen, you know, it, it has more of an impact and perhaps it's not just the case of people hallucinating, but perhaps they, they are entering some as a kind of reality that we can't perceive um, in our normal waking state. Now, in my recorded introduction to the show, I set out the essential basics of what a near-death experience entails. I know they're all unique, but as you point out, they've got commonalities. So we don't need to actually look at a definition, but we've touched upon some of these key aspects of it and the effects during the experience and after. And I think you mentioned the unconditional love that Kelly experienced. That seems to be like a universal thing. Although there can be some fear and some negative encounters and near-death experiences, the this overwhelming unconditional love seems to be... In fact, love, unlike anyone who's experienced it, has ever experienced on Earth, it just seems mm -hmm. to be something else. Then there's the, the idea of a life review. You know, the old cliche, your, uh -huh. life, your life flashes before you. And when in the experience, this sense of timelessness. Now, I'll come back to that later in more depth because there's some very profound possible scientific and philosophical implications in there. And then afterwards, this general sense of empathy, uh, that unconditional love extending that to other people, as in Kelly's case, wanting to help people and losing their fear of death, actually, if they ever had it. And most of people do to some extent or other. I think those are some of the key 
aspects, really. It's truly transformative, just to borrow a word from the title of the book. Oh, yes, it is. These experiences really are uh, transformative. And, you know, certainly when they have this, this feeling of deep, unconditional love, you know, it's it's beyond anything else that they've ever experienced. And something happens to them during this experience because when they come back, you know, they are transformed. And that is what is intriguing to me. Is there some sort of way that we could replicate what the people are are experiencing subjectively as a, and then if we could replicate it you know if we could develop this into some sort of therapy for people who are undergoing serious depression and anxiety as Kelly once was you know if there was um, a drug available i don't know in fact i don't know of any drug that could that has had the effect of this experience that um that Kelly had you know that experience has totally transformed her anxiety and depression into something of great positivity. Now, if there was a drug that had that effect, it would be hailed as a wonder drug. So why aren't people more interested and intrigued by these after effects of these experiences? You know, I think the tendency of these experiences is, or we can't explain them, or they must just be a hallucination, or because we can't explain them, let's not look at them any further. But I think, you know, this is something we should be excited about. They have real life-transforming effects. And I think if we had a deeper understanding of these, there are far more potential therapies that we could develop that would be of great benefit to other people as well. In my experience, my personal experience, and in reading about it and discussing this with many other people, the closest I could potentially offer to that would be the psychedelic drug experience at its, at its most positive and is by no means always positive, in terms of seeing the world as it is, which is fundamentally connected, feeling a sense of timelessness, that is to say that time and space as we understand them are illusory, or at least they're not a complete picture of reality, and this sense of oneness, as I mentioned, to extend from the idea of connectivity, oneness with everything. But again, that's not, I mean, I know Rick Strassman, I don't know if you've read any of his work, he's a medical yeah. medical doctor who's conducted trials with DMT. But his results were that some people had transformative experiences uh, having in, you know ingested DMT, but these tended to fade with time and they weren't always transformative by any means. And I know that the effects of the near-death experience can fade with time. But yes, I think I'm basically trying to offer some other food for thought, but also saying you're absolutely correct, there is nothing else quite like this. Yeah, that's right. And yes, there are a lot of similarities with psychedelic drugs like um, the LSD and DMT. And there's been lots of interesting studies as well. And I think it was one back in the 60s by Masters and Houston, I think. Um, I can remember reading their book, Variety of Psychedelic Experiences. And again, they said that, yes, people who'd had these experience, uh, drug experiences were changed, but they, they rarely, that, those changes didn't last so long. And oh, some people procrastinated about going to change, but they didn't actually put those changes into practice. Whereas if you look at, compare that with the near-death experience, the, the changes are long-lasting, although they can fade with time, you're quite right. But also, they, they don't, people don't procrastinate about what they're going to do. They actually do it. They put it into action. Like, which is one of the things that has impressed me about Kelly, you know. She said, oh, look, this, I've got these ideas for a positivity princess. 
and she could be this children's hero character. And she said, I, I've already patented this so that I can do this and I can do that and my vision is this, this and this. So she was already acting on it and she was just full of that good intention as well. Yeah, I mentioned briefly this feeling of timelessness that near-death experiencers report. I think this is one area of particular interest to me because I think what cutting-edge science is indicating is not only the fundamental connectedness of all reality, but that, as I mentioned earlier, this linear time that you and I experience in our waking lives, that that sense of the passing of time isn't fundamental when you get right down to it. It's something, it's almost like something that we use to operate in this 3D reality. Uh, ditto with space. And in many ways, the near-death experience confirms or seems to suggest rather that what we actually experience as ultimate reality is actually like some kind of little temporary bubble of strangeness that doesn't really operate within on fundamental principles. And it's got these little quirks, you know, like a bit of past and a future and this, that and the other thing that are very, very limiting. But that's what this reality is about, this little reality bubble. But beyond that, there's this like, ah, this is actually the ground of reality. And the cutting edge science and the near death experience suggests that this, that possibly that this is consciousness itself is the ground of reality. Yes. And I would kind of agree with that as well. Um, as a result of the kind of conclusions I've come to through my, exp uh, my research. But, um, that, that's a good point about the time because, you know, those time, time and space just don't exist during the experience. And if you think about it, some of these people are literally unconscious for a matter of seconds, yet what they experience would take a number of days to kind of get through in real life experience. So, you know, it, it's fascinating how in a matter of seconds, someone can have such a clear, detailed, lucid experience that would run on for, for hours and hours and hours if it was in played in real time. So that is quite a, a fascinating thing, especially when you consider the life review as well. You know, that, that expression, your life flashes before your eyes in seconds. Well, literally, but it's more than just a flashing before your eyes as well because these people are reliving aspects of their life in great detail, yet they might only be unconscious for those brief few seconds, but they've relived the whole of their life again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating thing. And it's a bit like dreams as well. You know, sometimes I can drift off to sleep in the night and I, and I feel like I've been asleep for ages and ages. And I, and I look at the clock and perhaps I've only been asleep for like 10, 15 minutes and things like that. There's, you know, there's that altered sense of perception during sleep as well forgot to mention this as well, is that one of the after effects of the near-death experience is that many people can't wear a wristwatch anymore after their experience. For some reason, clocks or watches will, stop, will malfunction in their presence. And that's kind of linked to time as well. So that's quite an interesting little after effect as well. It is, yeah. Well, I, I've, I'm unable to wear a watch because they just stop working. The last time I had a watch was when I was a child and, and it uh, didn't work out well. And I didn't buy it. It was given to me. And it was actually one of the early digital watches. So it wasn't like, it wasn't a physical mechanism as such. You know, it was a, uh -huh. it was a digital thing. What you were saying about dreaming reminded me of a couple of little stories from an interview I did many years ago. One was simply something that I've experienced for a long time and I still do on a regular basis, actually, which is a, when I'm asleep, a voice in my head 
It sometimes is an urge, but sometimes it's clearly a voice which says no. And what that means, and then that wakes me up. And then sometimes as few, as little as a few seconds later, my alarm goes off. So what does that tell us about time or consciousness? How is there a voice in my head while I'm asleep which knows that my alarm's about to go off? Yeah, that's a fascinating thing as well. And and is it is there some sort of physiological mechanism that's kind of coming into play? Or is it your subconscious? Or is it more than that? Is it consciousness itself communicating in some way? It's it's really, when you look at things in depth like that, it really kind of opens up many, many questions as well. The interview during which I recalled that little anecdote, um, my interviewer was telling me about a story he heard, similar lines, uh, similar to what you were saying about feeling that you've been asleep for a long time and you haven't, and mm-hmm. a lot of things happening in a dream state, similar to the life review and a near-death experience, but actually they couldn't possibly have taken place in real time because you'd only been asleep for an hour or something. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. told the story of this guy who was in bed and he'd gone into at some point into dreaming about being part of, I can't remember if it was a French revolutionary type scenario, but anyway, he lived an adult life. He had woke up with the experience of having dreamt about an entire life. And at the end of it, he was executed in public uh, by the guillotine. And what happened was he was in there having his dream, having his dream. Oh, no, things are going bad. I've been sentenced to death. And as he was guillotined in his dream, the headboard on his bed had obviously come loose at some point. It tipped over and hit him on the head and woke him up. Just oh just as the guillotine was going through his neck. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so I mean, that could have been a complete coincidence, but still, the, the fact that he lived in a life in his dream, and he was asleep for an average night, so maybe six, seven, eight hours, something like that. Oh, gosh, that's fascinating. Again, I wonder if in some way he he was picking up on that board becoming loose or something like that, and entered into the dream state, but it, it it doesn't really kind of compute, does it, you know? It's no, it just seems to be to make no sense whatsoever. Now, a key thing here, we've talked about consciousness being the, potentially the ground of reality. So far, that's kind of looking like a possibility. What might be beyond or below that, we don't know yet. There may be nothing, maybe a lot. As far as a near-death experience is concerned, quite often, this isn't just people who are maybe very ill in hospital. These can be people who have a brush with death, you know, like a violent accident, something like that, you know, a poisoning, you know, maybe they've tried to take their own lives, maybe they've been shot, you know, it can be something really dramatic and violent. So quite often their body can be disabled here, whether through any of those things I just mentioned or through illness, but also their brain sometimes, they can be showing no brain activity. If the body and brain, either or both, disabled during a near-death experience, then where is that consciousness? It's certainly not just floating around in someone's head, is it? Exactly, and if we consider the the current materialist um, perspective that con- um, the brain produces consciousness, well, there is absolutely no explanation for near-death experiences. There should be no conscious experience at all when the brain is flatlined. Yet, people who have a near-death experience during cardiac arrest do report this heightened state of awareness as well. And it's not just, you know, a normal kind of, uh, conscious awareness. This is a, a heightened state of awareness. It's a more sophisticated form of awareness, if you like, and it, it doesn't compute if their brain is, is flatlined. How could it be possible? So, you know, for me, the, the most 
logical explanation is to look at consciousness from that different perspective, whereas consciousness is primary and the brain mediates the consciousness rather than produces the consciousness. And I think that, you know, what makes most sense to me and has been alluded to by other researchers is that the brain acts as a sort of filter and it, it screens out this kind of heightened state of reality or, or true consciousness. But there are times in the person's life where that filter action becomes more relaxed. So rather than create an experience, all that's happening is that this heightened state of reality is allowed into that everyday awareness. And so that makes far more sense to me. And I think, you know, that is a good avenue p for further research to look at um, our understanding of consciousness. Now, in the book, a great deal of it is actually individual chapters by people who've undergone a near-death experience and they relate um, that and the, in particular the after effects. Uh, a couple of those were people who had a near-death experience when they were children. And in some cases, when they were really too young to actually have, be able to articulate it in any meaningful way, and it was maybe only later that they really began to consider it or process it or whatever. So there's an issue there, and we can only wonder about children having near-death experiences, uh, again, whether through an accident or illness, and uh, but who do obviously survive later. But you know, those who've perhaps never spoken about it, for you know fear of ridicule or whatever then there's other people who maybe can't speak just as it happens they cannot speak you know they they don't can't communicate in the same way that you and I do they may have these experiences then there may be people who we would class as mentally ill i mean there's a horrendous story in the book about this woman who was effectively sectioned after starting yeah. to talk about her near death experience but there are people who perhaps would be better able to label uh, mentally ill or having some kind of mental um, affliction, not just people who we don't agree with, if you see what I mean. So uh -huh. people who, who, who perhaps uh, doctors would agree, say, no, this person does have a, you know, a, a diagnosable condition. Here are the following symptoms. People like that, again, may undergo these experiences. And then it got to me to thinking about um, animals. Animals are conscious. You know, dogs and cats have a lower level of consciousness, it seems, than human beings, but they're also recognisable consciousness, you know, many similarities. So I do wonder about, um, I don't know, maybe if other living beings have these sorts of transcendental experiences, maybe they just process them differently because their engagement with reality is different. Yes, yeah, exactly. And yeah, it could well be that, you know, and, and I think perhaps when you look at child savants, for example, who... Um, experience, perhaps they experience consciousness in a very different way to what we do and perhaps it's a bit like streaming th things from the internet so perhaps people stream consciousness in different ways and that makes kind of more sense to me as uh, as well and also again you know when you look at other spiritually transformative experiences there's the something called spiritual emergency as well and that can often be misdiagnosed as, as a psychosis. And so, you know, it's because we, we don't understand these experiences and hence the need for more understanding with healthcare workers and healthcare professionals. And luckily now, you know, there are big changes and um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have a special interest group in these kind of experiences as well. So we're seeing... Um, 
you know, members of the healthcare profession who are becoming more informed about these experiences as well, which is very encouraging. And as well as a potentially delayed recall in some of the cases there, I was thinking of, there is the, the potential for kind of no recall. For example, the point is made in the book that do all who lose consciousness actually have one of these experiences, but we obviously don't hear from everyone in that. Yeah. And I'm not just talking now about people who don't talk about it, but maybe people who don't recall it for whatever reason. So that's an interesting area. It'll be interesting to see where that goes, you know, what the maybe more research and uh, more examination of people's own testimonies might tell us about that possibility in future. Yeah, that's right. You know, is there, you know, the people who don't recall having an experience but have had a cardiac arrest, for example, have they in some way uh, suppressed the experience? Or is it just they simply have absolutely no recall of it at all? And, you know, there's uh, one of the chapters in the book is a, a young man called Ainsley, and he didn't realise he'd had a near-death experience until many years later. And and again, I've got another example of another lady who had contacted me, and um, she was attacked in her home, and uh, she remembers losing consciousness and then waking up in the hospital. But then six months later, during the attack, she'd had her nose broken, so she had to go back into a hospital to have her more surgery to correct her nose. And as she went under anaesthetic, she suddenly found herself back in that scenario where she was being attacked. And this time when she lost consciousness, she went through that tunnel and she went on to recall a near-death experience. So is it that people do have the experience but simply don't recall it? So I think that's a, another really good potential avenue for further research as well. When you begin to read about near-death experiences and the character of them, one thing that's very striking is the parallels between those who claim to have had contact with spirits or with the dead. That's not just, you know, nameless spirits, but people who did once exist in, in this world and then since moved on. Just all sorts of um, aspects of that and overlap um, is there. And also with the, the notions of, of just of heaven that you find in biblical texts, you know, and, and, and lots of other spiritual traditions talking about you know, an afterlife or, you know, a realm that, where we come from into this world and where we return to afterwards. That's fascinating in itself because these are, these are, you know, clearly these people having the near-death experience are not making this up. You point out all the similarities, but it's just fascinating that the, the overlaps and the parallels with these other um, traditions and ideas and portrayals of a life beyond this one. Yes, absolutely. And, and and not only are there the, the very pleasant experiences, but there are also the, the distressing kind of experiences as well. And, you know, not all of them are pleasant. Some people do um, get distressed by their experience. There's kind of, these are more dif difficult to research because people are more reluctant to talk about these as well because there's, and also they feel some sort of stigma and it's like, What's wrong with me? Why didn't I have one of these pleasant experiences? Why was my, why was I frightened by my experience? And the, the first kind is the usual sort of near-death experience, but it's interpreted in a very frightening way. And then the second kind is the void experience, where someone can find themselves in this black, meaningless, eternal void. And uh, then the third experience is 
is a hellish type experience where people can actually feel themselves being dragged down by demons and things like that. And that can be really, really terrifying for the people and it can leave some people with a degree of, of post-traumatic stress as well, which again is so important that we get to understand on a deeper level so that we're able to support people as they're recovering from these experiences. Yes, I think the figure quoted in the book is a void experience can can affect up to 50% of people having a near-death experience. And also that the phrase I'm quoting here, the phrase shadow beings also comes out of one of the personal stories in the book because this person encountered what she described as shadow beings and that wasn't pleasant at all. Uh, she felt she was being pulled apart or taken piece by piece by these things. All of that actually has overlaps with the aforementioned psychedelic experience. Also with the, not the NDE, but the OBE, the out-of-body experience, which people people can just have spontaneously. And there's also people who I've interviewed who say they can induce these. That seems logical enough, you know, with practice, basically. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the different types of experience here is I remember speculating once in an inter- interview talking about an afterlife. And I was saying, well, you know, maybe part of the, the afterlife experience is based on our expectations, you know, because there's a lot of um, evidence that suggests in life in general, how we approach things, what our outlook is, what our expectations are, seem to have a, a small but measurable effect on outcomes. So I remember saying, oh, maybe Richard Dawkins, you know, if he thinks that the afterlife is a black void of nothingness, well, maybe that's what he'll experience. And if someone else believes it's floating around on clouds with their previously deceased relatives, maybe that's what they'll experience. You know, who knows what processes might come into play here? And I I was reminded of that when I started thinking about these different experiences. Yeah, that's a really good point, in fact. And yes, that is definitely a possibility. And it's not only our our conscious expectations as well, it's also our our subconscious expectations. Sometimes, you know, they could come into play as well. You know, we don't even realise that we've got stuff in our subconscious sometimes. So perhaps they come through in the experience as well. I mentioned just a moment ago the out-of-body experience. Taken in tandem with the near-death experience and psychic phenomena in general i'm talking now about everything from telepathy to telekinesis to what gets called prophecy basically i think that they're all in some ways aspects of um, a wider reality i think they're all telling us something and in their own way they're all telling us they're all giving us a piece of the same puzzle i think if there's anything to these different psychic phenomena that have been uh measured in lab- laboratory conditions, for example, like remote viewing, very difficult to replicate, but it's it's scientifically verified as quite a lot of other psi phenomena are, but again, difficult to replicate and, yeah. and just have on demand. They're telling us something, and I think that it's, uh, to me, it suggests that, as I mentioned earlier, the way we have reality is back to front. We're here, you and I tonight, thinking that, well, perhaps we don't think this so much, but a lot of us are here thinking this is the ultimate reality, and all this other weird stuff, there might be something to it, but it's on the fringe, whereas it appears to be almost like what this fringe stuff is, is actually a wider part of a wider reality. And what we're living in, as you alluded to earlier, is actually a very restricted bandwidth of possibility and phenomena that are only giving us a tiny little picture. Yeah, I I would agree with that, yes. And that's, you know, that's kind of one of the, the conclusions I've come to as a result of studying these experiences for so many years, you know, it's, it's the, the thing that makes most sense to me. Maybe in a few years' time there'll be something else that will make more sense to me. But currently, 
that certainly does make a lot of sense, yes. Yeah, and I think that the other stuff that I alluded to, when I when I say cutting-edge science, I'm usually referring to quantum physics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, quantum mechanics and what, what all we've been learning there, because it's really a new paradigm of reality that's come along that even makes Einstein look out of date. Timelessness, I mentioned earlier, the fact that the material is not actually the real, as it were, and the sense of that flexibility of time or that non-existence of linear time as we think of it, Meaning that again, what the science is suggesting is that past and f- the past and future are all accessible. It's almost like everything exists at once, as it were. There isn't a distinct past moving along a trajectory to the future. I, I just think it's very exciting what what, you know, the, the, what the cutting edge science is, how it's tying in with the near death experience. And I just wish sometimes people were talking to each other more in these areas mm. because we have a very atomized uh, world at the minute, don't we? A lot of specialists particularly when it comes to science, particularly when it comes to medicine. And there are good reasons why you want a specialist in medicine. If you've got a brain injury, you want a brain specialist on that. But just in terms of a holistic picture, I think we could, uh, a lot of conver- you know, big conversations would serve us well. And, of course, I think that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's it. It's, you know, it's, it's collaboration that's going to really um, take these things further forward. So if we could collaborate with more people or or scientists of all different kind of uh, disciplines so that we all collectively come up with something, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, it would be great to work as part of a team rather than in isolation as well. And so we, you get different kind of expertise from all different fields and put that expertise into one pot so we can really take this work forward. Now, we mentioned earlier that, that however profound the effects of um, a near-death experience the deep connections that people experience during them can dissipate with time. Now, and Kelly is a great example of the, the best outcome, really, you can hope for with one of these experiences. But you talk about the ripple effects of the near-death experience in the book. And certainly, this is something that, having read you guys' book just recently, I just finished that a couple of days ago, that instilled in me a kind of a fresh sense of optimism and excitement about just about the reality that we're part of and that, you know, that ultimately it's a positive thing and about the possibility of, you know, I, I don't need the idea of, of an afterlife in order to give meaning to this life, mm-hmm. but it just, I can't really, it's really like having a booster. It's like a reboot for your consciousness. And the last time it happened was when I read Lessons from the Light, which yeah. is an, another great book. And it was so inspiring to read just, and mm-hmm. I think this is obviously one of your hopes as well, isn't it? That you don't have to have a near-death experience to be able to take on board, you know, enact changes in your life to improve things. Absolutely. And that, that book you just mentioned, Lessons from the Life by Kenneth Ring, you know, that in that book he talks about the effects of near-death experiences and how he's likened the near-death experience to a benign virus because once you kind of engage with these experiences, you can get really hooked on them, you know, and that they can really inspire you and you can be changed through engaging with these experiences. And I know that, you know, when he did um, a brief survey with the students that he used to teach in the University of Connecticut, and he found that his students were changed in many of the ways that people who've had a near-death experience are, and that was simply through studying the experience, you know. And certainly that's true in my life. Since engaging with near-death experiences, it it has really changed me in many ways. And I feel like I've had a spiritual transformation 
uh, as a result of undertaking my research. It's completely given me a different outlook on life. And I think if we can start to engage people on a wider level, on a wider scale, that more and more people will become engaged with these experiences because I've seen attitudes change towards near-death experiences. When I started researching them, it was very difficult to find someone who would chat with me face-to-face about the experience. And then gradually, over the years, I found more and more people. Of course, I, I came across the ones in my hospital research as well. But then back in 2006, I think it was, there was a, a rec- an article um, in the local newspaper and then into the national newspaper, and they put my email address in that, and I had about 600 emails straight away from people. And now, uh, since my last book, The, the Wisdom of Near-Death Experience, I've got over 14,000 emails, you know, I'm overwhelmed by them and I can't respond to them. And that's about people who want to share their experience. So I think the more people are hearing about the experiences, the more people are encouraged to talk about their own experience, and then more people are beginning to engage with these experiences as well. So I think it's really, really encouraging because, you know, the ultimate message of these experiences is, is one of love, peace and respect. And it's about doing unto others as you would wish to have done unto yourself. And, and what a, a lovely way if everyone behaved in that way, you know. One other th- uh, parallel I was struck by reading about near-death experiences was how um, not only similarities, I'd say, with the out-of-body experience and other um, effects, but how certain people had reached a kind of uh, existential crisis uh, in their lives, had some form of uh, psychotic break or breakdown, and become transformed in quite a similar way. Now, yeah. some people have some kind of breakdown and they're just lost. You don't, see, you know, they're gone. Uh, it affects them badly. And they never really recover from it. They're, they're transformed in all the wrong ways. And I was thinking about someone like Eckhart Tolle, who's very famous in the uh, in the world of spirituality and consciousness. And anyone who's read his story will know he came to the point of suicide, to the point where he just could not take life anymore. Something flipped in that man's brain, and he just virtually became a different person, for the better, because he, he couldn't go on living the way he did. But many of the things that he espouses are actually quite similar to, to some people who've had a near-death experience, how they come back feeling that they certain things that they want to do to help people and to say, actually, it's not what you think, it's this, it's okay. Even someone like um, David Icke, another famous person on the alternative scene, now he's a controversial character, a lot of people do not like what he is saying, but the reason I mention it is because he had a comfortable, safe life and something flipped inside him and it, suddenly everything about who he was and what he wanted to do, needed to do, was going to do, changed. I wonder where all this is leading is that thinking of the quote from Bernie Siegel uh, in, in your book, and he's, his quote was, we unconsciously create a schedule for the future. I got to thinking, do some people have a near-death experience that co- their consciousness, subconscious, subconscious, whatever it happens to be, has engineered for them at, when the time has come when something needs to change? No, it's a pretty wild suggestion, but that, that thought occurred to me, you know. Gosh, yeah, that is. That is a, well, it's certainly a possibility, and I don't think, you know, I'd be able to answer it at this stage, but that is certainly, you know, something to throw out there as well. And perhaps people who have had the experiences, perhaps would, depending on the circumstances, some might say, no way, I would never have agreed to have done this. But some might say, hmm, okay, well, perhaps it does make, make sense to me. So I don't know, but that is an interesting concept, certainly. 
Yeah, well, I'd say something to something to to think about in the future, especially if if some maybe some evidence for it starting to emerge. You know, one thing I wanted to bring up with you is what has now your your this book is fairly fresh. It's a lot of people's personal stories. You know, sometimes books can take years to come to fruition, but this is quite a fast turnaround. Uh, but what might the like what has changed really in the near death experience and your understanding of it from your experience? since you started and, and what might some of the more recent developments be you know if somebody said to you somebody oh i'm very familiar with your work penny what's new you know i haven't seen you for a year what's the latest you know and perhaps the, what the deeper dimensions of this might be well i think if this could be something um as part of our evolutionary process as well because if you look at near-death experiences and the after effects very often people are more altruistic and more loving towards others. And of course that has implications on the individual level. So when you're being nice to, to people, you're actually releasing all these great chemicals into your body. You're releasing things like oxytocin and things, which are all conducive to very good health of the individual. But when you're behaving in an altruistic way to other people and you're putting the the needs of others before yourself as well. That in itself is, you know, contributing to our evolution as well. And it's interesting because I don't know if, if you've read the book by Stephen Pinker, I think it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature. In that, he talks about how our society is becoming a less violent society. Although, you know, when you read the news and hear some of the atrocious things that are going on, perhaps it doesn't seem like it. But if you take into... Um, into the view of the whole history, um, Stephen Pinker believes that we're actually becoming less violent. So perhaps we are becoming, this is all conducive to our evolution, and perhaps we're evolving to that next level of consciousness as well. So it could be, you know, that our consciousness is developing, but also as human beings, we're becoming more loving and more altruistic, and perhaps peace on earth will be a thing that we, we can co-create for the future. You mentioned some of the negative stuff that we see happening around the world. Um, if there's such a thing as a collective near-death experience as a species, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean, like whether we could yeah. whether we could have a shock to the system that would yeah. make us all think, well, we came really close there to being wiped out. Um, yeah. It's time to change. Yeah, that's a really good point because look at where we are. We're, we're literally on that balance point really aren't we and we could either be annihilated or we could progress into a wonderful peaceful future and I think you know we really need to kind of have that wider perspective and look beyond our individual beings and look at us in the, the wider perspective as part of a great whole and if you look at what we're doing to the earth and mother nature you know we're, we're destroying ourselves you know we really are and we need to take care of ourselves you know, look at look at indigenous cultures and the respect that they have for Mother Nature. You know, we really need to get back into that mode of thought as well. And I think we're on that balance point and perhaps, yes, we could go either way. And I'm hoping we go into a more positive and peaceful future and, and that these experiences will kind of help us get to that level as well. But, um, you know, we, we are at a very dangerous point really as uh, as part of our humanity now a lot of our evolution as a species has involved um differences in our brain that is to say you know left brain versus right brain 
and a degree of extreme separation between the two versus more integrated situation. Uh, I think, actually, as much as the left and right brain are both important, I, I think that if you have too much of one, that's not good for us. So I think that's integrating the two of them and the sort of yin and yang, you know, black and yeah. white, male and female type. There's all of these dualities that you find in nature. I think reintegrating the brain would be very important as we go forward. And I think something like the near-death experience may be part of that happening, actually. And that uh, the, the more integrated brain that some people suggest there's evidence that we had in the past, part of that is actually this these psychic abilities, this sensitivity to the non-material, this connection that we have, an unspoken connection. You know, yeah. every, a lot of people working in this area, you know, like Rupert Sheldrick's dogs knowing when their owners are coming home or before the phone rings, you, you suddenly think about your aunt ringing and then your phone rings and it's your aunt or feeling that something bad has happened to a loved one, just a feeling and then you find out it's true. I think these are all aspects of the human potential, whether we had it in the past or not, I think going forward that that's part of our evolution too. Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think perhaps, you know, we, we've lost the roots of, of those things as well because we've got technology now so we don't perhaps have to to think about the way in which we communicate. Everything is done like that. Whereas before, perhaps we had more time to sort of um, communicate in different ways. And so I think sometimes it's about getting back in touch with our inner nature as well. And uh, yes, yeah, certainly those, those experiences, yes, they are very common. They're very common for me, certainly. And I used to witness them, actually, as in, when I was working as a nurse. You know, I in fact, another discussion I had in class today was um, when I worked in intensive care and I was working on a night shift looking after a young man and he was becoming very, very distressed. And the aim was to make sure that we could keep his sedation off so that we could fully wake him up in the following morning and uh, for the whole of the night shift I was literally couldn't leave this man's bedside I was talking him through coming through the sedation and at one point he reached a bit of a crisis point and it was about five past four in the morning and I can remember that several of my colleagues had to assist me to keep him calm and as soon as that kicked off the phone went and it was his mother and she said, I know, what's, what's, tell me what's happening with him. I can, I can sense something's going on. So we explained the situation and she came down to the hospital and, and sat with him and he was much calmer and we were able to maintain uh, keeping his sedation off. So that was something, things like that I used to see very regularly in the hospital as well. Well, speaking about the medical profession, in many ways you would think that anything that contributed towards more understanding of the you know human condition, human health, mental and physical, and how these things work together. For example, the placebo effect is widely accepted, but its actual implications are just ignored. That's a good example of the mind-body connection. But you would think that anything along these lines would be welcomed across the board by, by medical professionals at whatever level. But there seems to be, obviously, you've experienced a certain amount of resistance to these things, and certainly good luck going to your GP to talk about near-death experience. You know, in terms yeah. of how that pans out, um, you might just get some medication. What does, in that case, whether individually or collectively, what, what does the medical profession in general, in your opinion, have to lose by kind of exploring this or beginning to kind of accept the evidence in front of its its nose? Because it seems kind of like, well, you know, it's, if it turns out to be nothing, then you haven't lost anything. So I'm just wondering yeah. what, what the resistance is all about. 
I know. I just think it's it's something that they just don't take on board. There, there's this attitude that they know better, that these are just some sort of hallucinations, and there, there's absolutely no basis in reality for these experiences. But clearly, these experiences have great effects, and there's so much potential of what could be developed. And I just think it's Oh, it's so frustrating because for years I've been trying to get these into the education of nurses and doctors, but it's just, it's become a real great struggle to try and do it. But there are some changes, you know, the, the younger doctors coming through and some of the, the older ones that I've worked with as well, you know, they certainly, when they understand more about the experience, they, they have become more open to it. And I was very fortunate where I worked in intensive care the, the doctors there all did take these experiences on board and so they were quite aware of them and if a patient reported an experience they told me about it but they also documented it in the notes as well which is a really quite a big breakthrough and I think you know we, we are going to see changes and they're, they're perhaps a bit small you know they're not as quick as uh, I would like to see, but there are changes, and certainly with the, the Royal College of Psychiatrists Special Interest Group and, and people like that, you know, they're very forward-thinking now, and they're very much aware of these experiences. So I think in the future we're, we're going to see big changes. Yeah, well, you know, maybe a few senior um, consultants or something will have near-death experiences themselves, and they'll <laughs> they'll run out down the street uh, shouting about it from the rooftops. But certainly, like a lot of things in human affairs, in history, and in you know in evolution, you know whether it's in our, our, of our bodies or whether it's of our minds, you can reach a tipping point. It's difficult to say what that would be, but if acceptance of this phenomena kind of became the norm at some point, whatever majority that would take you would see huge changes would come very quickly and uh, as is also pointed out in your book you don't need the overwhelming majority of a population or a species to adopt something or accept something for it to for it to become kind of unstoppable yes that's right and and i think you know it, it's gonna once i don't know once once so many people have have got this deeper understanding it's because people look at it and the surface value of it you know they they don't connect with it and they don't engage with it but it's it's when they engage with it that people become intrigued by these experiences and that's when attitudes start to change you know and I'm fortunate because um, I teach a course on an adult education in the adult education department and it's really interesting to see people kind of change their ideas about these things once they start to become educated about them and the changes it's made on on the lives of the students as well is, is really quite impacting so it's a really great subject to become involved with and you know it's, it's something that we can all be empowered by if we could only all engage with it as well. Well Colin Wilson the late great Colin Wilson wrote about someone a colleague of his who was uh, been, I think it was it was Abraham Maslow actually and he, he was lecturing on peak experiences and he got to the point with the students where he, the students were able to like self-induce spontaneously have peak consciousness experiences just by thinking about having them so it was almost like focusing on this talking about it thinking about it started to make it actually happen uh -huh. so I think there's a lesson for us in there and I mean, I would say there's a nice quote from Bernie Siegel again from the book, the wiser we get, the better the future will be for those who follow us. So I would just say a bit like the Sufi tradition suggests that we die before we die. I would just say mm -hmm. to, to anyone listening to this who's intrigued, don't wait until you're dying before looking into this. Before And if there's changes that you want to make in your life, don't wait. Uh, yes, absolutely. 
So, Penny, today we've been talking about your book, as mentioned at the top of the hour, um, co-authored with Kelly Walsh and contributions from lots of people who've undergone near-death experiences. Uh, just to remind people, the title of the book is The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences, How the Message of NDEs Positively Impact the World. Now that's out now on Watkins, that's widely available. Before we close off, however, is there, I'd like to share maybe your website, Kelly's, I mean there's a long list of websites in the book, but maybe a couple of the, the key ones that people should look at first. Well, there's Kelly Walsh, um, and that's PositivityPowerMovement.com. She's also got another website, PositivityPrincess.com, and KellyMichelleWalsh.com. One person in the book is um, Gigi Strela, and she has initiated the NearDeathExperienceUK.com, and that is uh, like a support group for people who've had a near-death experience. Um, there's also uh, my website as well, www.drpennysartori.com. And at the back of the, the book, there is a list of all of the contributors and, and all of their websites. And um, have a look at all of them. You know, there, there's some great uh, websites there, some great resources as well. Splendid. Well, Penny, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much, Greg. <laughs>